Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 2. Today I'm speaking with author Lasana Wallens. I have spoken with Lasana before in my other podcast, and I really enjoyed getting a chance to have a time to reconnect with her and talk with her again. I really wanted to have her on the podcast to show that there are very many different types of witches and different paths, and uh, hers is different than many others. Some people call themselves pagans, some people call themselves witches, some are both. And uh, many different people who call themselves witches are not like another. So one of the reasons you know, I really want to highlight that in this podcast, because many people feel like they can kind of speak with authority and say, witches are this, witches are that, when this really isn't the case. There are many different types of witches. And that's something that I really want to address on this podcast. Outside of that, I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to Lasana again. I had a wonderful time talking with her. I think we talked for like a half hour after we stopped recording, uh, and I just had to get off because I had um, family obligations. Uh, that shows you how much I enjoy talking to her, and she's a, such as an engaging, wonderful, and informative person, so it's so easy to. hope that shows in this uh, conversation, but I think it will. Uh, so I'm going to take you right to my conversation with Lasana Wallens. Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm very honored to have author Lasana Wallens on the program. She's the author of The Natural Witches Cookbook, and Lasana is a nutritional chef, clinical herbalist. Lasana, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, everyone who's listening. Dean, thank you so much. Um, I'm so thrilled to be back here and to be speaking and so excited about this podcast. Are, are we talking, uh, are you in France? Yes, I am at, currently in Paris right now. What's it like in Paris right now? Uh, well, it's actually spring here a lot earlier than it is. I'm from New York originally. Uh, I was born just outside of New York City. I went to Barnard of Columbia University. So I'm like, I'm an original New Yorker. And then I moved to Paris um, just after I graduated university. And I can say that New York East Coast winters, they just go on and on. And right now in Paris, the sun is coming out, there are flowers, the birds are tweeting. It's um, it's, it's a relief. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Now you grew up, did you grow up in New York? I grew up in Larchmont, which was just outside of uh, New York City. So I was in and out of the city a lot. And um, I also grew up in Martha's Vineyard, running wild in the forest. That's uh, how a lot of my my witchiness started. I was a, yeah, I was a little, little wildling, <laughs> um, building fairy houses and uh, having tea parties with uh, imaginary elves and magical creatures. And <laughs> that was very much my youth. And I'm also um, half Dutch. So my mother is from Holland. So I grew up in all my vacations in the summertime. I spent a lot of time there too. So that's a big part of me as well. When you were running around the um, the woods as a young person, did you feel a real connection to uh, the plants and the and the creatures of the forest? I felt such a connection to it, and it's something that um, I'm getting back to right now. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more uh, later in the podcast in different ways. But I I maybe I didn't quite understand it, but I felt that energy. Uh, very strongly and when did you find that you had leanings telling you that you might be a witch what was I think the first inklings for you so running running wild in the forest was one of the first inklings that I had that <laughs> I had some magic in me and I even went through a period where I was almost devastated by what I thought was something imaginary that it couldn't be real so what do I mean by that like discovering the world of Harry Potter and then being so sad that that's not the real world and I think <laughs> I want yeah and I wanted so much to be a witch to be connected to something magical that there was always this sadness that I felt that it wasn't real because my connection to witchcraft was very much what I'd seen in movies or even um, some of the Wiccan pagan type books that I had picked up uh, or looked at from my older sister when she went through a phase and I was much younger and I couldn't connect with it. So I always felt like it was something make-believe. And then 
as I am now growing into this identity of a witch that I am today, I started to realize that this forest, this connection that I had when I was little, that was the magic for me. That was being a witch, that interconnectedness with nature, with plants. Um, and today I'm I'm finalizing my medical degree uh, in clinical herbalism so I can truly prescribe plants to people <laughs> as a medicine and working with mycology and all these different fields. So it takes me right back uh, to that little kid that was there in the forest. And um, actually just as an aside, the forest that I used to play in it was actually um, the the place that my parents had, how do I say this? The place that my parents had, um, the land they had bought their home on, it turned out to have an Indian, a native Indian Wampanoag trail that was cutting through the property. And oh, wow. yeah, and they didn't realize that. And then afterwards they started to clear the land and they saw this giant sort of in sort of incline of a path that's, uh, you can't miss it. So it really goes down into the ground. And it was the path they would take to walk to go oystering into the great ponds. So what we did was we kept grooming them and we kept them sacred. And um, my mom worked really hard to get moss growing over it. She's pretty witchy herself. So I was not only playing in the forest and connecting with the mushrooms and the plants, but I was actually playing on this sacred ground and I was very much aware that this was a, a a sacred Indian trail and thinking of the the tribes and the people who had walked on it before so the connection runs deep and um, I'm happy that people are connecting more and more with that when I when I'm in the room with uh, 10 other um, witches even though we all use the term they there is a real distinction I think in most people's practices and how they feel and how they self-define. For instance, you know, when I talk about it, it's very, I always have a lot of caveats and sidebars. It's almost like a Venn diagram. But for me, I say, you know, I'm a witch, you know, but I also identify as Druid and I also identify as pagan. When you say you're a witch, how do you identify yourself and how do you classify? Mm, I love that. And I also love the way you describe the Venn diagrams. Uh, I'd never heard someone describe that before. I think that would I think a lot of people would uh, feel like they connect with that because I do feel like in general witchcraft, this umbrella term is all these different practices and we customize it. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Um, I, I, for me, I think I inhabit more of this ancient archetype of the healer type uh, witchcraft, green witchcraft, culinary witchcraft, um, herbalist. So for me, it's very much using plants and nature and food. Um, I like to say food, flora and fungi as a way to heal. So wielding the elements and within that practice or sort of around that practice, um, there are these offsets, like for example, into crystals or into little rituals or ceremonies. Um, that's something that is also part of it. For me, I think I would say I'm less drawn in by the the Wiccan side of it because um, when I was little and I found those 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 books there was something in it that I just couldn't connect to the type of rituals that it was and I wanted to engage in those rituals I wanted to feel powerful and magical and I wanted what they were talking about but I didn't know how to how to make it happen on my terms and I I love and think it's amazing that that people can practice in that kind of more ritualistic altars ceremonies way and I wish I was connected with more people that I can learn from them perhaps but for me I really felt connected with this witch identity this power this magic when I'm brewing potions and um, making healing blends and cooking and then I can start to see magic and sublimation take place I see that I can give a healing tea to somebody and it can change their mood or help them feel better. So for me, that's this healing culinary herbalist green witch archetype is something that I feel like I most identify with. Was there a moment for you in your life where you said out loud, I am a witch? Where, what was that like for you? And when was, when did that happen? Uh, I think my book, um, the Natural Witches Cookbook. I think when that came out, um, that really was 
that moment for me. And the fact that the the French publisher that the book was published with first, because I originally wrote it in French somehow. <laughs> and uh, even though I'm not French, I learned the language. And I think receiving that kind of eagerness from my publisher um, around this concept of the witch, I think that was something that really solidified it for me. I even remember saying to them, you know, if the witch thing is too much, we can take that out and I can make it more just around healing. And they said, no, we want that. And I think I started to have to defend that title and that subject matter. And I found myself uh, breaking down barriers of our uh, former perceptions of the witch. So a, a lot of our, our, our perceptions of witches today come from Disney, or which is a pretty anti-feminist depiction of, um, of witches. And a, a, a lot of the time they're jealousy crazed obsessed with vanity using their magic for darkness so that was what a lot of us grew up with and then we had bewitched for example and glenda mm -hmm. and there are these very very idealized housewife tamed virgin version of um of witches i wrote about this in the first chapters of my book to sort of explain this evolution and i think hopefully and i think that now we have we're getting back to the original archetype, the ancient archetype of the witch and the woman connected to nature, interested in sciences and knowledge, free in sexuality, uh, empowered in, in all those ways that are threatening <laughs> to uh, many people. And I think that we were breaking through with that. But I remember at the beginning, I really had to say to people like, no, no, not the bad witch. <laughs> this is not the freaking nose witch. <laughs> this is something else. So it's pretty cool seeing that start to shift now that I don't think people are thrown off anymore the way they were even like three years ago. So it's progress. Was it scary at all um, for people to start referring to you in that, in that way? Um, I, I, I think I had fun with it. I remember the first few times when people would ask me, what do you do? Which is always a really weird question for people who are, I, I grew up in a family with, with lawyers, and consultants, and people who had very, very like, title jobs, or my, my boyfriend's a musician, it's very, people get that. But me, I, I mean, I write cookbooks, I do classes, I do all these strange things around it. So I think when I just threw it out there and I said, I'm a witch, it was kind of fun seeing people's reactions to that. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think it's, I, I mean, there's something a little scary always in pushing boundaries um I was actually thinking before we talked today like, will this title stay with me will this title of which will it be something that I use to sort of put myself into a category so people can see that or will it sort of become so ubiquitous and everybody kind of embodying this in different ways that I, that it'll the titles will shift I don't know it's it's interesting to think about how this is evolving. Were there any books or people that inspired you in your formulative years as a witch? Hmm. Uh, I was a huge Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter kid. Those were worlds that just opened up a fantasy for me into, into worlds, I would say, because I had, was always collecting as a child Celtic books and um, myths and learning about from the Selkies to the Brownies to all the different um, nymphs and fairies that were out there. And then getting to connect those inside these universes, that was, that was just imagination opening for me. And then I fell into a period where it was very academic, <laughs> um, a very perfectionist, trying to work through this American elite education system trap machine that uh, really broke me um, and enriched me at the same time. I had the most incredible education, but at the same time, it was so constrained I, I stopped creating, I stopped making art. It was, um, it, it was very structured. So I was incredibly influenced by authors during that period, like um, French literature as well, like Baudelaire and Balzac, and in English, Henry Miller, Edgar Allan Poe, and the Irish poets, and all those 
worlds that were magical and strange and uh, and weird in themselves and Kafkaesque. So that was that period. And then I'd say now I'm being just marked by herbalists. <laughs> That's where I am at this point. I'm collecting more and more books and learning about plant intelligence. And it's been this this formations class, this graduate school program I'm doing in France is incredible because we're learning about plant medicine, not just through a chemical and scientific and very medicinal doctor, almost Western medicine lens, but at the same time, it's all energetic. Like we're learning how you can decipher the benefits of plants based on the uh, difficulty of the environment that they grow in <laughs> and just how alive and interconnected it, it's been. It's been an incredibly trippy and mind-blowing experience taking these these classes that are still going to go on for a few years. <laughs> you know, it's funny <clears throat> when I talk to people, it is very common that people say they were inspired by Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And I think that I don't know any anybody who's a witch that isn't <clears throat> inspired specifically by Lord of the Rings. Like I and I know a lot of people who are inspired by such books as uh, The Mists of Avalon. Mm -hmm. But I know that um you know, it's funny because we don't often talk about it. We meet together, but like, if you just mention Lord of the Rings in a room at a pagan convention, for instance, everybody's got opinions. Everybody's got something to say. Mm. Did you have any favorite bits of uh, Lord of the Rings? Anything you you were drawn to, like the elves or something? Oh, I love, I love the hobbits. Even <laughs> the elves and oh, the yeah. hobbits. I was just, I was very drawn to everything and the ants ants and the wizards and the connection to nature I think that's something that always fascinated me this harnessing of the energy and the power of nature and that interconnectedness and also how Tolkien wove in these concepts of fascism and 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 evil and and although everything he built around that combined with this natural element and there was something in that, that that I think is connected to the witchcraft that we have today. I, I don't think there I don't think there are many people who identify with any form of witchcraft out there who aren't lying and fighting for the planets and concerned about that and concerned about social issues and, and human rights. So that's actually that's an interesting symmetry with Tolkien. There's that dimension, society as a whole and nature, and that's something we see in witchcraft today as well I think yeah I mean I just feel like it resonates again and again I mean it resonated in the 80s it resonated in the 90s mm -hmm. it resonates now you know it still has a, a touchstone for us mm -hmm. <clears throat> now I ask everybody who's on the show about their uh, path and I know that like that's something that not, is not the same for everybody like some people are eclectic where they kind of borrow from different traditions I studied Wicca for a long time and now my studies are more in the uh, the order of the bards, ovates, and druids um, from England, and I study that path right now. Do you do have you studied any paths um, at all that you kind of were kind of some teachings for you? Um, the path that I am on right now, and the path that really brought me to rediscover and reconnect with this identity of a witch, is very much inside the realm of healing. Um, it right. was something that I was forced back into because I was, I literally found myself in front of doctors who didn't know how to help me and nature was mother nature filled with so many secrets and, and the, actually the foundation of Western medicine and pharmaceuticals itself, uh, is something that I always felt very safe with. So, um, I would say that this journey of a witch and the one that I'm on is very intertwined with that. Maybe one day it'll veer off more into different directions. But what I'm interested in, in seeing is sort of how I will evolve as a healer. I have, I, I know a lot for where I am in my life, but I feel I'm confronted every day with how little I know. <laughs> every time I am put myself in front of a plant and try to understand its chemical structure and what it does in the body, it just opens up one uh, door after the next into this endless channel of knowledge that can be filled. So I, 
I'm just excited to see how much I'll learn, what I'll evolve into. Um, and my, just see what I'll be able to accomplish and not just healing myself, which is this sort of epic quest that I'm on, but how one day I can help other people. Because every time I help someone now, or every time I come up with a potion or I come up with a solution, you can trace it back to a moment of suffering or something I had to overcome. So it's, um, I'm excited to see how that will, <laughs> that'll play out. Well, bringing that up, I want to talk, go to the question, um, or we can like have you talk about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, so you've had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome for quite a while. Can you talk about that a little bit for the people who are not aware of it? First of all, thank you so much for asking about this. Um, it is it is something that I try as much as I can to advocate for because there are just so many people who have this condition, which I'll explain in a in a moment. And there's a lot of people who are suffering out there. And I see how much I struggle and I have every support imaginable um, with something so misunderstood. So thank you for giving me a platform that I can talk about it because maybe it can help somebody out there who's listening or somebody who knows somebody else. Um, it's a, a genetic condition that I was born with that renders my collagen fragile. Uh, collagen is our connective tissue. It's an 80% of the body. It's our skin. It's our tendons, it's our hair, bones, teeth. It's the entire structure of our organs. It's communication pathways. So like every structural element of the body is basically collagen. Everything in the body is collagen, uh, a form of it, except the nervous system itself. Uh, so it's, it's everywhere. And if it's fragile, like a, think of like a delicate silk cloth instead of sturdy cotton, cotton, for example. Well, if it's fragile, things go wrong and it causes a lot of complex symptoms from uh, chronic pain to digestive issues, to dislocations, to uh, uh, dysautonomia, which looks a lot like long COVID because they're actually quite connected in, in terms of the source. And um, it's, an incredibly complicated condition because it manifests so many different symptoms and it very often manifests more in women um, because of estrogen and its connection to histamines. So very often you have people going to doctors and they're complaining about digestive issues, pain, their heart rates, um, mental, it manifests with mental symptoms that can very often look like bipolar disorder because of mm -hmm. adrenaline and nervous system issues. So very often you get the portrait of a woman uh, or, or there are men also who have Ehlers-Danlos. I don't want to <laughs> put them out of this, but uh, so it's very much the portrait of somebody who comes into a doctor complaining about all these diverse things. And then the doctor tells you, okay, you should go see a therapist. And very much it's because they either don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed by the symptoms. They dismiss the person. Um, I, it's been a, a lifetime of medical gaslighting and trauma for me. So I can, I can only imagine what it's been like for, for black women or for people who don't fall into a, as easy a category. So it's, um, there's a lot of suffering around this. And my doctors and friends believe that up to 3% of the population has this condition on a form of a spectrum. And it also is very connected with witches. <laughs> um, I'll explain how. So when your connective tissue is loose, means that your brain also has very loose plastic connections. This gives right. ways to people who are quite neurodivergent, um, highly emotional, um, very intuitive. We can feel people's energy. We're just like sponges emotionally. We can feel energy. Um, we can feel things that are otherworldly. And uh, I, I hear my doctors talk about this and they say that their patients don't really want it talk about it because they come across as crazy. But for example, we pass electricity very easily since there's more water, there's loose tissue. So there's even some people who can walk into a room and the lights will start to flicker. So there's an aspect of this that is uh, quite witchy actually. And um, it makes very creative people, um, musicians. Uh, there's a lot of musicians out there of like, um, 
uh, Sia Halsey recently, Billie Eilish just talked about having hypermobility and feeling like her body was gaslighting her, which just feels so exactly what my life story has been being gaslit by one's own body. And um, I just see a lot of people, a lot of witches actually, and witchy people I see on social media have this condition. So I, I wonder even if I might even without having had this as much pain and misery as it gives me, if I might not be the witchy person that I am today without it. So there's, it brings an incredible suffering and is incredibly difficult to treat. And I'm in the middle of a flare right now. My body is exploding with pain <laughs> all the time. And um, it's just, it's, it's a, every day is a, a battle and a fight and it's really, really hard. And it also makes, it's turning me into something. I don't know, but something good will come out of it. And that's kind of, that's the reason why I wrote, I wrote my book. I had to turn all this suffering into something good. I had to sublimate it. And that's what I hope that I can I do and continue to do with my, my writing and my, my healing. <laughs> now <clears throat> I've worked in medicine a little bit and I know a lot of women who've suffered through things and I don't feel like they were well served by the medical community, but I know that you've been able to probably see medicine on different coasts. Cause I don't often, we don't often see what it's like in other countries to deal with medicine. Does Europe deal with some of these issues any better or is it pretty much the same as the United States? It's, it's very different. Um, there are benefits to both sides. Uh, you, my doctors out here would call a lot of the specialists in America cowboys and the pioneers and the people who are really pushing forward the fields. And America has incredible like specialists and people who are um, leading the way. But in terms of general treatment, I mean, there's universal healthcare in France, which is absolutely once you're inside of it, you just can't possibly understand how America doesn't have some kind of baseline health insurance for people who pay taxes. It just, it's, it's mind blowing. So that is something that I'm incredibly grateful for and appreciative of. Um, I would say a big difference that I see that impacts me as a patient in general is that European doctors more look at the body as a whole. And American doctors are very much inside this specialty system. And uh, that also helps produce the greatest specialists out there. So it's double-sided. And American doctors are very afraid of liability. They're, they will go to more extreme lengths. They will, they're afraid they're gonna get sued. And they're afraid if something happens to the patients that they will lose their license. So I, I see doctors in America pushing sometimes medications or procedures or exams that doctors in France would say are, is not necessary. Um, and I also see something interesting. American doctors are very obsessed with weight, body weight. Yes. And, yeah. it's, and it's not just being too heavy, but it's also being too skinny. I, I got, I had a lot of bad moments with doctors, um, like threatening feeding tubes and I couldn't go back to school and against a weight that a French doctor would sort of look at my chart and say, yep, you've lost some weight. That makes sense given how you're suffering right now. Um, but nothing to be too concerned about. And yet in America, there was this panic over it. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently that there's, America is just obsessed with weight on a, on a level that it trickles down into the medical world. And that capacity, I think, is, is interesting. Um, and also, it's just much more plant-based here. So you go into a pharmacy, and the first thing on the wall are essential oils and plant treatments. And the pharmacist will go to those before they recommend even something pharmaceutical. And there's also a, a lot of naturopathic doctors here. Um, and their naturopathic doctors in Europe and in America, they have the same standing as medical doctors, almost. There's some things in law that are they're not equal on, but they're fighting for, but they have the same qualifications. And it's really great that in Europe, there's, there's so many naturopathic doctors and it's starting in America, but I have some work to do, a lot of work to do, let's say. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's funny because I feel like we sometimes slide back and regress because... 
like you said, they they weigh you, they ask you if you smoke, and then they're done, basically. Yeah. How long did it take for you to get diagnosed with uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? I was actually, so uh, an interesting fact about diagnosis, which says a lot about sexism in the medical world, um, mm -hmm. even though I think something like 80% of cases, um, manifested cases of this condition are in women, um, the average delay of diagnosis for women of after onset of severe symptoms is 16 years and the average delay of diagnosis after onset of symptoms for men is four years so for an incredibly rare condition that barely touches men men are getting diagnosed four times faster than women are and that really, I think, comes down to, oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, not being believed. And I've been told by doctors, go see a psychiatrist um, or or you have an eating disorder. That was a big one they like to throw out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I was actually, yeah. I was lucky. I was diagnosed really young. I was diagnosed at 16 by a cardiologist who happened to have seen that I had glowing blue eye white and then looked to see if I was hypermobile. Because people ask me, are you hypermobile? I say, no. Cause I didn't know I was how, and, and everybody in my family had little traces of it. So what you end up happening are people who don't realize that they're that way. It, it tricks you in that capacity. Um, but I have incredible healthcare and support in France and it just is heartbreaking to me because I, I have so much support from my family and the people around me, but I hear from my doctors that that's very rare that most often you have parents and partners and friends and family who don't believe the person because um, you look normal <laughs> and that's that's hard for people to wrap their heads around so even me I, I think sometimes even though I know it's not in my head I have to tell myself this is real don't question yourself because we're we're we have this imposter syndrome that we impose on ourselves even in this it's crazy <laughs> and most people I know that are healers usually have something that they suffer from themselves. Do you think that it's that sense of not being listened to or not enough questions being asked that leads you to kind of look for answers on your own? That's really interesting. I, I, I think when you look into why people do the professions that they do, I think there's always a really, it's always fascinating to try to connect that. Like why do people cook or why do people want to be doctors or healers? Um, very often for doctors or healers, there's an encounter with something, something that they're trying to fix or to heal. And uh, um, sorry, can you just actually repeat one more time and I'll start again? You no, know, that's fine. Yeah, it's kind of, oh. I kind of threw that curveball question. No, at I, I started going, no, 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 it was me, please. <laughs> no. Um, a lot of people that I know that our healers also suffer from maladies themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times it's because they're not being taken seriously, not enough questions are being asked. And because the the medical system relies so much on just, you know, handing out pills and stuff and not really looking at things holistically, is do you think that's why some people turn to healing and, and natural healing and homeopathy? Absolutely. I think I think searching for answers and this sense of empowerment and uh, using the tools that we have around us because healing fundamentally started with nature like it's it is the foundation of all the medicine that we have today so there is medicine at our disposal there are answers are at our disposal and but when those reach their limits we go back to the source and i think healing is something that is in all of us it's it's in our genes, it's in ourselves to be able to use plants and nature. There's an intuition that we all have. And people who are more advanced in herbalism, you feel connections to the plants. And I have that. I, I know what plants I gravitate towards or need even before I fully understand what their benefits are. So that's something, an intuition I try to develop more and more, but um, I might be more tapped into that than other people, but everybody has that inside of them. So I, what I'm seeing is not only that people who are healers 
have something in themselves that they're trying to resolve or that they want to sublimate, but that we're starting to see people becoming their own self-healers all around us. And I think that's really fantastic. Um, and at the same time, I think people also have to be a little bit careful <laughs> with that because there's a lot of products that are being thrown out at people and, um, and people are kind of reading the the headlines and not understanding the context and the fine print behind it something that's playing out in the the news cycles as well so i just hope that people can be as they venture into this self-healing journey which many do everyone's really into mushrooms now which is so fantastic i encourage that just like, take the time and do the research and really really familiarize yourself with with the plants and the the tools that you're wielding I, I was going to ask you why you wrote your first book, but I think we've kind of established that a little bit. So I want to ask you, can you describe to our listeners your book, The Natural Witch's Cookbook? I wrote The Natural Witch's Cookbook really as a sublimation of my self-healing journey and as a way to help other people. And I wanted to create a cookbook that would engage people with how to start healing themselves through food and plants. So I didn't want it to just be a cookbook with recipes. I wanted each recipe to be a healing spell. So every recipe in the book targets a different system in the body, whether it's immunity or um, uh, fertility or uh, hormone balance or mood or uh, digestive issues. Literally, I tried to cover sort of everything across the chart. And the, that intention was not to teach people how to booster fertility or balance hormones way more complicated than that but it was to sort of teach people that the food that we're eating the things that we put the ingredients that we put into these recipes aren't just sort of like pieces to a puzzle for flavor and health but that they're actually doing specific things in the body and that when you combine certain ingredients it can really optimize the effects or alter them so i hope that in when people would like sort of flip through my recipes that they would just be learning all these different little facts about nutrients and food. And that when they added like um, a sweet potato or spinach or something to a recipe that they wouldn't sort of look at it in the same way. For example, people um, uh, think of goose, for example, or goose fat as something really fatty and indulgent. The French use it a lot, but actually in terms of its chemical structure, it's closer to olive oil than it is to um, the type of fat that you find in chicken even. So I was really looking into these fun little nuances of food to try to educate people. And the book is uh, structured according to the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. And um, each chapter, devoted to earth, air, fire, and water, and also a chapter for sweets and beauty, homemade beauty products and lots of little extras. But the earth, air, fire, and water was to sort of balance the recipes between plant-based, which I advocate to eat in the most quantity, and then seafood recipes, and which would be from uh, uh, the water and the air for poultry and uh, fire of the red meats. And of course, earth being the vegetables. So I sort of broke it up into that structure. And what we started to find that the elements of the earth all sort of fall into a sort of category with the antioxidants and the vitamins and the minerals. And then when you look at the elements from the ocean, you start to see the same kind of vitamins and nutrients coming out at you, the same trace minerals, the same types of proteins and fats that you find in, in algae and fish and seafood and the iron that you find in shellfish. And then looking over at the red meats, you sort of also start to see the kind of nutritive elements come out. So it was a way to sort of set the foundation of look at these categories of ingredients and foods and you see how they all sort of serve a purpose um, in the body in a different way and then inside the recipes it targets specific areas within that so this book was more balanced in terms of uh, the elements and um, my next book that I'm finalizing is really much more of of the earth you would say going deeper into healing but specifically from the earth the one thing that I loved about the cookbook that really surprised me and 
that I don't think you would have gotten without your wonderful photographs was how there was a real visual component to all the foods you were cooking. Was that something you intended? Um, it was something I intended and something that kind of developed. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to showcase the ingredients. So just cooking with them and putting them inside the recipe wasn't enough. I wanted to show these beautiful rhizomes of ginger and turmeric and show the broccoli and showcase them because that's really what these recipes were about, the healing elements of the ingredients. And then inside that, the, it started to become like a painting. So when I set up the scene for my for my photo shoots, uh, there's always this meditative moment when I have all the ingredients laid out and I start to put them on the plate and I find, or on the stone or the surface that I'm working on. And I'm trying to find a balance in it. And it always feels like a mix between painting and sculpture. And what's interesting is I, I have a background in, in painting and in sculpture. And I did a lot of styling when I worked in fashion, but I never really, I, I'm more self-taught in photography, but I find that all those other elements inform themselves as I'm, as I'm working through my, my photography and videos and styling shoots that I do. I was surprised to hear, um, for, for, for disclosure, I've interviewed you about this book before. So we've asked some of these questions. <laughs> But it still surprises me that you did the photographs because they're really, I mean, not that you couldn't be a great photographer, but because most people who write cookbooks aren't good photographers, although I'm seeing more and more people that are lately. But, um, you know, in the past, say the 70s and 80s, that would never have happened. But you you shot the phot photographs for this and they were really singularly beautiful. <gasps> and you say you didn't have any training. That's just, you're self-taught. That's just amazing to me. But I, But hearing that you have a background in painting and sculpture, there was kind of a painting element to the photographs. Was that intentional? Yeah, I think it was intentional. First of all, thank you so much. That was so lovely. <laughs> uh, I, I, it was intentional and it also sort of manifested on its, on its own. Um, and yeah, it's been, um, I, I've, it's been incredible sort of finding my, my eye and my vision and my sort of style inside this. I had to do it very quickly uh, for my for my first book to really solidify that style, so it's it's interesting reflecting on it that I, I I didn't have anything else that I think could have come out, so that was something pretty innate to me. I didn't have to search a lot for that, but it's an art that I'm constantly evolving with. For this for my last book, I um, I had to photograph it in winter in an attic studio in Paris and I had to recreate sunlight because it was getting dark at two o'clock there was no it was it was in the most insane circumstances so that was an incredible work of, of light manipulation and then for this next book I have been just adamantly obsessed with sunshine and I <laughs> I said this one I'm not doing in inside a dark attic so I I've been photographing this one the next book kind of all over the world it feels like um but absolute natural sunlight so it's been um it's been quite an interesting journey as a as a photographer but thank you so much i don't think i would anybody would have ever guessed that you uh photographed it in an attic i mean the, the photographs are really well done and i, I love the in fact I, maybe it maybe it made it a plus because i think it I, they just look really good Thank yeah. you. I might have. I actually, I use a lot of, I had candles lit up to create lot natural lighting and oh, um, yeah. it, it's, there was, there was an, there's an effect in this book that you can, it's mysterious and magical. So it was, maybe it ended up being a plus as challenging as it was. <laughs> now, who are some of the authors that have inspired you as a writer? Um, I was, I was going back to all these French poets and, and Irish poets and all the, the people from my academic years, those had formidable influence on me. Um, uh, also American writers, Norman Mailer, Tim O'Brien, so forth. But I actually, as I was thinking about that list, I realized the person who was influenced me the most as a writer is actually my father. My father is, a, is an author himself and it's thanks to him that I can write and that I am writing really. And he's um, he was originally a human rights activist and a federal prosecutor and lawyer and wearer of many hats. And he's written multiple books and he's actually coming out with a book about uh, Siberia, 
um, Russian penal system called Into Siberia. So he's an incredible author and he was just working with me since I was a small girl on how to write. He would go through my, my essays for school and cover them in notes and, and really work with me on sculpting it and sculpting sentences. So he's someone who has impacted me more than, more than anybody has. And also I'm somebody who just talks so much. <laughs> I pack words into sentences and, um, and he's very precise with his words and very simple, impactful sentences. So I still strive to um, be even more like him in my writing. So yeah, my father, Gregory Wallace, he's influenced me probably the most from anyone. <laughs> what a wonderful mentor to have. That's really beautiful. I'm so lucky. <laughs> now you've uh, teased some uh, mentions of a book. So what's next for you? Well, my my next book is pretty much finished. Um, I, I was working on it throughout the whole pandemic. I just went crazy photographing. It's going to be a seasonal book. I'm not going to give away too much, but there's a seasonal aspect and very much plant-based aspect and even deeper into plant healing and mushroom healing. So it was, uh, I was just cooking instead of having to cook everything in this little addict in a, in a period of time, this has been more open-ended during the pandemic. So I just was going crazy, going, getting all the beautiful seasonal fruits and vegetables and chasing sunlight. And by the time I looked up for my camera, I realized I had photographed 250 recipes. <laughs> so I think I actually wow. ended up writing like two books. Um, and now it's in the honing down process. And of course, when one writes a cookbook, you think that it'll be totally straightforward, but of course there's all kinds of little uh, obstacles and things to sort of maneuver around that come up. But I, I'm, I'm really eager for this book to, to come out as soon as possible. There's publishers um, in different locations around the world who are, who are waiting <laughs> as well. So I'm, it's gonna be, hopefully sometime next year there might be might be more details of a of a release date but um patience and this one's going to be this one's going to be really special so i'm very excited <laughs> you know one last question i thought of because i saw a recent post by you online um how many languages has your book been uh, translated into so far um it's i think it's four languages it's in french english german and russian is is coming out and uh i think i know the post that you're that you're referring to um mm -hmm. <laughs> that i will for my the russian book i will be donating all my royalties to uh, uh ukrainian um medical support and ukrainian red cross there's uh, not a lot of control that authors have in terms of, of their books, but this is something that that I can do. So I'm I'm also very excited that it's going to be coming out in Russian. It's um I have I have also a Georgian Belarusian background, and a lot of my cooking with mushrooms and the earth and the forest comes from that side of the world. So exciting stuff. <laughs> That's just really beautiful. I mean, it must be thrilling to find all these different communities your book's being read in, isn't it? It's amazing. I'm I'm so humbled by this. I'm I and it might even be still coming out in other languages. It's just been um, my publisher in France has done an absolutely incredible job. Solar, they've really they've really gone out there and <laughs> I'm so lucky to also have had these opportunities. I see your book everywhere when I go out. No, oh is it thrilling God. for you? <laughs> Was it thrilling? How do you feel when you see your book in the wild, so to speak? Oh, I, it's, I, it's so exciting. Uh, um, it's a little surreal to see that. It's, it's so scary also putting, putting a book, being an artist or creating anything that's a product that you pour yourself into like that. Um, I bet so many people who create something and do it themselves are, probably feel this way but it's also scary sending it out into the world uh, and to be judged to be consumed and and so forth so it's getting positive feedback or like seeing hearing you say that you see my book everywhere is just such uh, I mean I'm gonna be high on that all week so it's 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 great because we we all try so hard and it's um it's seeing all these I mean I, I don't look at 
books, I would say the same way, like what authors, how they, what they pour into. And I think people don't even realize how much, how that I like the expression, a lot of um, cookbook women are using about book babies, like it's giving birth and it really does feel like a labor. <laughs> a creation and it's um so it's yeah it's really special actually my dad always said something funny he says being being an artist whether it's music or books he says it's like you have a baby you take the baby out into the world and then people will feel like they have the right to come up to you and say oh that's the ugliest baby i've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) and he's like that's what it feels like like, yeah that's that's a good it's a good metaphor (laughs) i like that (laughs) Lasana, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and uh, talking about, you know, your your life as a witch. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Dean. I, I am so grateful to have this little platform and to be able to, to speak with you about this. You've been so generous to, to all of us and to all the witches and authors that you have been showcasing and speaking with. So we're, we're all so endlessly grateful to you. Thank you. Well, I love it. <laughs> That was my conversation with Lasana Wallance. You can get her book, The Natural Witches Cookbooks, are all better bookstores. We have a link to it um, in the bio as well. Next week, we'll be talking to Janae Marantate. She's the author of Tea Magic, Spells, Rituals, and Divination in Your Cup. I had a great time talking to Janae, and I can't wait to have you hear my conversation with her. I hope you all have a really great week, and you're having a really great time right now. Uh, The spring equinox is coming up, and I hope you have a great time celebrating that. Until next week, have a wonderful, wonderful week.